The old pilot's plane tails. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Cathay 780. Mayday is derived from the French term medi, meaning help me. Its use in aviation is attributed to a senior radio officer of Croydon Airport, Frederick Stanley Cockford, who first coined it in 1923. Such is the reliability of modern aircraft, it's quite likely that the vast majority of pilots will go through their entire flying career without ever uttering a mayday call. It's only used in the most dire of circumstances, but on the 13th of April 2010, such a situation had developed on the Airbus A330 of Captain Malcolm Waters and his first officer, David Hayhoe. This is their story. They were operating Cathay Flight 780 from Surabaya in the Java region of Indonesia back home to Hong Kong's Cheplak Kok, with pretty much a full load, a total of 322 souls on board. Their aircraft was first flown in 1998, less than a year after the handover of Hong Kong, when the island's sovereignty was passed from the United Kingdom to China. When the crew climbed on board, it was parked on stand number 8. Looking at their paperwork, they would probably have spotted the notice to airmen that had been issued by the airport relating to their stand. It said in the usual jumble of abbreviations and poor English, Parking Stand 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 and 10, Operation, but caution advised due to work in progress, Remarks, Extension and Closed Pipe Fuel Hydrant System. From this, it would have appeared that some work was being done on the stands and care should be taken. In fact, Surabaya had been enlarging their apron for around a year and some of the work involved extending the refueling circuit that supplied fuel to the stands, including the one where Cathay 780 was parked. For those unfamiliar, most modern airports supply large aircraft like the A330 with fuel through an underground pipe system from storage tanks on the edge of the airfield. The truck seen under the wing connected to the aircraft is little more than a mobile pump, correctly termed a hydrant dispenser, that takes fuel from a connection buried in the apron and passes it up to the fuel tanks. As the refueler pumped the additional 24.4 tonnes of fuel that the aircraft would require for the five-hour flight, he didn't question the fact that the flow rate was unusually slow. Nor did he investigate the increase in differential pressure reading that he was getting, or that the fuel filters in his fuel truck had required several unscheduled replacements. He did, however, stop refuelling on occasions because of an odd vibration that was occurring in the delivery hose, which he put down to trapped air. When he finished loading the fuel, he performed a visual and water check on a fuel sample and noted that it was bright and clear. Captain Waters accepted the aircraft and, with his first officer, prepared it for flight. 
They started both their Rolls-Royce Trent 700 engines and taxied out. It was first off Sir Hayhoe's leg, so he performed the takeoff and climbed it up to their cruise height. It was during the climb that the crew first spotted some slight engine pressure ratio fluctuations. It's a measure of engine thrust on the number two engine, but they were small, only plus or minus 0.015 around the EPA target. EPA is a measure of the ratio of total pressure exiting the engine divided by the total pressure entering it. The number one engine also had some fluctuations, but within an even smaller range. They levelled their aircraft at flight level 390, and a little while later a warning appeared on the ECAM page titled Eng 2 Control System Fault, with the advice note Eng 2 Slow Response. Contacting their operations centre by satphone, they asked for technical advice. They discussed the options, but agreed that apart from the EPA fluctuations, everything appeared normal, and so they cleared the warning and continued towards Hong Kong. Just over an hour later, after a slight turn, Flight 780 adjusted their cruising level to Flight Level 380 the correct semicircular height for their new heading. As they started their short descent, the ECAM again warned them of an Engine 2 control system fault, this time with the additional note to avoid rapid thrust changes. The crew turned on the engine and the ice to see if this had an effect on the fluctuating EPA, but the gauge continued to oscillate. A further call was made to maintenance control and Captain Waters expressed his concern as the EPA fluctuations on the number 2 engine had increased. The discussion came down to the fact that the number 2 engine hadn't been worked on at Surabaya and the slight fluctuations in the number 1 engine might be because it was compensating for the changes in the number 2 engine. The avoid rapid thrust changes note was probably related to a pressure probe that controlled the movable inlet guide vanes near the front of the engine that helps smooth the airflow through the compressors. Since the number one engine still appeared to be running well, as before, the advice was to continue to Hong Kong, where the engineers would replace the number two engine fuel metering unit. An hour and a half later, Flight 780 arrived into Hong Kong airspace. Hong Kong was on runway 07 left. The wind was 9 knots across with good visibility, a few clouds at 600 feet and scattered cloud at 1800 feet. With a southerly wind coming over the high ground near the airport, significant wind shear was forecast for both 07 left and 07 right, but no actual alerts had been given. As they began their descent, the engines throttled back, and a short while later, another ECAM warning sounded, and a smell of burning mixed with ozone invaded the flight deck from the cabin conditioning system. This time, the fault read Engine 1 Control System Fault, shortly followed by 
engine to stall. The situation had just escalated from an annoyance to a full-blown emergency. An engine stall is a disruption of the airflow going through the engine. The fuel continues to burn, so the temperature rises quickly, in this case from around 400 degrees centigrade to well over 700, and the thrust the engine produces is negligible. The conversation on the flight deck was calm. Captain Waters identified the fault. OK, engine two stall. His first officer replied, confirmed. I have control, ECAM actions. OK, thrust lever number two, confirm? Confirm, idle. The captain continued, check, engine two parameters checked. We've got fuel flow, we've got EGT, rotation, you fly. The FADEC, the Full Authority Digital Engine Control Computers on modern jet engines are programmed to recognise and deal with various common types of failure and a stall, while serious, is usually cleared by just pulling the throttle back and allowing the airflow in the engine to smooth out. Their descent continued and, realising the seriousness of their situation, the captain put out a pan call. Hong Kong, uh, Cathay 780, pan pan, pan pan, pan pan. We are operating engine 2 at idle thrust at the moment, but operations normal apart from that. However, realising that they had problems on both engines, Captain Waters made a wise decision. Hong Kong, Cathay uh, 780, Pan, if we could just get priority thanks, we would like to track short as much as possible. Waters was already eyeing up his distance to the runway against his height, and just in case the worst occurred and both engines failed, he was ensuring that he could still make the airfield. However, at the moment he had one engine with a minor fault, and the other might clear its stall and become available, so he was just being cautious. He briefed his cabin crew on the problem, and with First Officer Hayho programming the approach, they both had their hands full. They also discussed what they would have to do if they needed to go around from their approach. Hong Kong was built on the edge of Cheplakok Island, which rises to over 3,000 feet just four miles south of the runways. The captain briefed it. Yep, a quick rebrief here. The engine out go-around in case of a go-around. It's climb on track to Sierra Mike Tango VOR, right turn to Rover, right turn onto a heading of 190 or a track of 190, uh, maximum speed is 220 knots until we are either on the 190 or above 2500 feet. On a normal go-around, the crew would be faced with a track that wends between the peaks that surround Kowloon at nearly 3300 feet, but a go-around with one engine inoperative is more difficult. That track must turn south to follow the narrow but safe channel between the islands. At this point, in accordance with Cathay Pacific standard procedures, Captain Waters took control of the aircraft and his first officer assumed the pilot monitoring duties. By now they had reached 8,000 feet and were around 300 knots, some 45 miles south of the airfield, 
when the situation took a turn for the worst. The ECAM warned, Engine 1 stall. What has called for the ECAM actions, which required them to put their only remaining engine to idle to clear the stall? The speed started to bleed back, and Waters started a descent, holding them at a gliding speed. He tried advancing engine number two, but it remained firmly stuck at a very low idle speed. He tried engine number one, but that also failed to respond. Hey-ho spoke over the radio. Approach. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Cathay 780 has engine one and engine two stall. Uh, Currently, we require a lower descent, maintaining 8,000. They worked the problem, but their conversation with the approach controller said it all. Cathay 780, your position is 1-4 miles south of Soko. Roger, Cathay 780 Mayday. At the moment we are heading 330 on a long base, trying to extend our glide as best as possible, and we are just trying for relights. Advancing the number one thrust lever, they got the engine up to about three quarters power, 70% N1, but there it stuck, regardless of whatever they did with the lever. In an attempt to recover the number two engine, they shut it down and performed a relight, but it remained at a near useless sub-idle power setting. All whilst this was going on, the crew were handling multiple warnings as systems came offline, starts failed, and they had more engine stall messages. They were monitoring their position, making calls to the cabin crew and air traffic. Captain Waters even had time to speak to his passengers. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the captain speaking. As you no doubt, another warning chime sounded, may be aware, we have a small problem with our engines. Uh, You might feel some vibrations, and we've been given priority to land, but I do stress that it's very important that you remain seated with your lap straps fastened and follow the directions from your cabin crew. We are probably about six or seven minutes from touchdown, and we are just manoeuvring now for landing and descending. Please remain seated with your seatbelts fastened. With one engine stuck and the other useless, at least they had some power, but Waters was in a dilemma. If he stayed high, thinking he might lose number one, and it remained running, he might overshoot the runway. If he came in lower and it failed, he might fall short and crash into the undershoot. He trod a careful middle path, putting what flaps he could down and lowering the gear but ensuring he stayed a bit high as he closed on the runway. His number one engine was still stuck at a moderately high power setting and that was becoming a problem as he needed to slow and get more flap out. With his gear down and full speed brake, he couldn't slow the aircraft to get all the flap he wanted, so warning started. Too low, terrain, and pull up. With the runway in sight, Waters weaved his aircraft in a zigzag, trying to lose height and speed, but at three miles he was still doing 230 knots. Although they didn't voice their concerns, their talk was very professional, and, 
Both pilots must have realised that since their only remaining engine was stuck at less than full power, a go-around wasn't really an option. Captain Waters landed his aircraft at a ground speed of 231 knots, about 100 knots above the normal landing speed, with only the first stage of flap deployed. He would probably happily admit it wasn't his finest landing. They bounced and scraped the number one engine pod, but then settled onto the gear. He applied maximum manual braking and brought his aircraft to a halt with a thousand feet of the twelve and a half thousand foot runway left. But he, his crew and his passengers were safe and well. With his brakes reaching a thousand degrees centigrade and fires starting around the gear, he elected to evacuate the aircraft. There were inevitably some injuries, but the worst was a broken ankle, the majority being abrasions and bruises. Waters walked through the empty cabin with his senior cabin crew member to ensure that everyone had safely left before taking to the slides himself. He was the last to leave the aircraft. The investigation revealed that the fuel loaded onto Cathay Flight 780 in Surabaya was contaminated with superabsorbent polymer spheres. The spheres came from the monitoring filters in the hydrant dispenser, which refueled Cathay 780. The filters had reacted to salt water that had been allowed to contaminate the refueling circuit during the work that was being done on the apron. The sticky spheres travelled into the tanks of the A330 and eventually lodged in the fuel metering valve, which controls the fuel flow into the engine. They eventually caused the valves to seize in their final positions. In addition, the sap spheres were found in the fuel-operated actuators of the inlet guide vanes of both engines, and they were bad enough to seize the actuators of the number 2 engine. The problem of fuel contamination at Surabaya was put down to insufficient flushing of the fuel pipes following their recommission, and also to a lack of alertness on the part of the refueling personnel. These issues have been dealt with. This was the first of this type of fuel contamination to ever occur in the civil world, but in light of the lessons learned, Airbus revised its QRH to include a section on suspected fuel contamination for Rolls-Royce, Pratt & Whitney and General Electric engines. Captain Waters and First Officer Hayhoe were commended for their actions in bringing their aircraft safely home and for the excellent crew coordination, handling skills and technical knowledge that they displayed. In addition, in March 2014, the pilots were awarded the Polaris Award by the International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations for their heroism and airmanship.